If you're a waiter in a coffee shop, you know it's going to be a good day if Jerry Seinfeld comes in for a cup of coffee and a Danish. That's because Seinfeld makes a point of leaving a celebrity tip, a Hollywood-level tip, the kind of tip you would expect someone who has $900 million to leave. Okay, the check is $37. How much tip would you leave? Ten. <laughs> you go to hell. That's not enough? No. Wait, you moved the decimals. It was a $40 check. You would leave $8 would be 20%. No, am I... Russell, would you help me? I'll help you. Because <laughs> everyone's going to ask her. Oh, my God, you waited on Jerry Seinfeld and Sarah Jessica Parker. How much did they tip you? How much did he What do you want you? her to say? 20 bucks. Yeah, is that what you want to say? <laughs> Ten. You just moved the decimal point. Second. Okay, wait. You're going to leave. Wow, big shot, big shot. Unbelievable. Gross. Disgusting. Garish. Vulgar. Hey, it's Ajay, and this is a special archived episode of Akimbo. Tipping is a fascinating practice, primarily experienced in the United States in restaurants, but it goes way back in history. Tipping, the idea that after the service is rendered, after the check is presented, we will unilaterally make up how much money we're going to give to the person who waited on us. And as we learned from Jerry Seinfeld, it's a complicated transaction. Because if Seinfeld is really worried about how people see him, he's probably not going to make a video explaining that the reason he leaves big tips is because he doesn't want people to think he's cheap. Do you tip as much when you're by yourself as when you are with other people? Do you tip based on a percentage of the check, even though it's often not at all related to the amount of effort that the person bringing you the food went through? Do you, like many people, tip differently based on the gender or race of the person who's waiting on you? Have you noticed that tipping is often seen as a lever for misogyny or sexism? Maybe not intentional, but there nonetheless. It turns out that restaurants are one of the biggest industries in the United States based on the number of people they employ. And tipping has created multiple tiers of income, depending on where in the restaurant you work and which sort of restaurant you are, not to mention which shifts you get. In New York State, it's against the law for restaurant owners to give part of the tips to the people in the back of the house, the people who actually make the food or clean the plates. Those folks often make minimum wage. In the front of the house, on the other hand, on a good night, if there's a really big wine list and celebrities are coming, it's not unusual at all for a top-tier waiter to make $100,000 or more a year. It also means that restaurants rarely can afford things like parental leave or health care. As a result, we have an entire workforce that struggles hoping that maybe someone's going to leave them a good tip and struggling when they don't. The great writer Steve Pressfield told me that when he was 11 years old, he went with some friends, older friends, to a diner. And at the end of the meal, probably french fries and a Coke, he left the amount that was on the check. While his 16-year-old friend, the one with the cool car, took him by the shoulder and said, 
We don't do that. We don't do that because someone worked really hard to bring us that food. So yeah, you're going to leave a decent tip. Is a tip a gift? Is it a payment for services rendered? How come in Europe, where the tip is included, locals don't hesitate to pay what's on the check? Think for a second about all the people that we don't tip in our lives. We don't tip the toll collector. We don't tip the surgeon. We don't tip the gardener on a regular basis. We don't tip the person who is going to sell us a book at the bookstore. And yet, we tip in a restaurant. Except not if the restaurant's in Europe or Asia or South America, because there, the gratuity is included. It comes down to this idea of people like us do things like this. There's a long tradition in the United States of people leaving a tip. People like us, we leave a tip. But if the tip, the amount you're going to give in a tip is automatic on your part, you always leave 15% or 20% or if you're Jerry Seinfeld, 50%. Well then, why isn't it just included? Danny Meyer, the founder of Shake Shack, who runs a number of restaurants in New York City, is focused on getting rid of tipping. He sees all the inequities in tipping. He sees its inefficiencies. And so, at many of his restaurants, tipping is now included. You'd think that this would be an easy sell, because if you're the kind of person that's used to tipping 20%, done. It's included. It's easy. You sign the credit card slip, and you leave. There's no worrying about whether you left too much or too little. There's no discussing with people how to do the fractions. You sign the check, and you leave. However, it's not that easy. It's not that easy because some people like the status. Some people say, well, if I'm not my usual big tipping self, how can I be sure I'm going to get that extra special service I've been getting? And it doesn't matter that they haven't been getting extra special service. They just think they have. Because ultimately, when we give a gift, like a tip, we're really giving it to ourselves. We tip 20% because it's worth 25% for us to do that. It's worth it because of the story we tell ourselves. It's worth it because of the status that we gain when we're dining with the people we're seeking to improve our status with. So yes, when Danny takes away tipping, what he's doing is also taking away a lever, a sense of control, a status hook that some people want to bring to a restaurant. When we talk about being selfish and doing it for ourselves, it begs a question. What about people who give money to charity? What about people like Sylvia Bloom? You probably didn't know Sylvia. She was a legal secretary in New York City. She lived to be more than 95 years old. She walked to work every day from her apartment in Manhattan, toiling in obscurity as a legal secretary, doing what she was supposed to. And yet, when she died, in her will, she gave $8.2 million to charity. Not because she had an oil gusher, but because she saved her money and she invested her money. She didn't go out for fancy dinners. She didn't wear fancy clothes. She just decided. She decided at a young age to put a little bit of money away, invest it wisely, and keep doing it. 
not because one day she'd buy a mansion in the Hamptons, but because when she was dead, when she couldn't get any credit for it whatsoever, she was going to give $8.2 million, $8,200,000 to a charity that she was not an active part of. Why would someone do this? What motivates us to be generous? The scholar Maimonides tried to put together a hierarchy of the goodness of charity. The lowest level, giving begrudgingly. Because people like us do things like this and you don't want to lose your status. Here, take some money. Giving less than you should, but doing it cheerfully. Giving after you are asked. Giving before you are asked. The fifth one, giving when you don't know who's getting the money, but the person getting the money knows that you gave it. The sixth one, giving when you know the recipient's identity, but the recipient doesn't know yours. Because, of course, your status with them is unaffected. Number seven, giving when neither party knows who the other one is. And finally, enabling the recipient to ultimately become self-sufficient, eliminating the need for you to give that person charity. The Chronicle of Philanthropy regularly ranks the top 50 donors in a given year and where that money went. It turns out that most of the money goes to hospitals and colleges, institutions that really don't need the money. Why does it go there? Because you can get a building named after yourself. And when you get a building named after yourself for giving 8 or 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 million dollars, well, it's pretty clear why you're doing it. You're doing it because you want to help, but you're also doing it because you're status goes up, because you're establishing to others that you're the kind of person who has the kind of resources that can make this sort of difference. It's pretty different than Sylvia Bloom, who waited until she was dead to give the equivalent of 20 years worth of income all in one pile to a charity that she hardly knew. But I want to argue that in both cases, What's being purchased is a story, a story we tell ourselves, a story about the impact that we can make, about our relationship with other people, about power or status or belonging, a story about our parents, a story about our children, a story about the impact that we want to make in the world. There are two lessons that nonprofit leaders can take away from this examination of tipping. The first one is, people like us do things like this. Our definition of culture. Understanding what the people around us do. Years ago in the 70s, my dad was the volunteer head of the United Way in Buffalo. And one of the things he did to set a record in fundraising was establish a $1,000 level. Just $1,000. And he defined that as what the top tier folks in Buffalo would be giving. Once he got 10 doctors or judges or lawyers to pony up the $1,000, 
Once you've got the first 10 or so, the next steps are pretty straightforward. Because then you could say to the next group you encountered, well, do you want to do what Nordy and Ronnie and Iris and Irving are doing? Or do you want to be left behind? It establishes a cultural standard. In or out, you're one of us or you're falling behind. The second thing, which I think can open the door for so many people who would like to do fundraising for nonprofits they care about, when you are asking for money, please remember that if someone's going to give you $2, they're only going to do it if it's worth more than $2 to them to tell themselves that story. And if that's true, if Sylvia Bloom got more than $8 million worth of joy out of knowing about the gift that she was going to be able to give, then not asking for it is stealing. That not giving someone the opportunity to find the joy and the connection and the status and the satisfaction that come from contributing to a cause that you and they believe in, if you take that away from them, you've taken away all of the benefit they would have gotten that's over and above the money they would have given you. Once we see it that way, we realize that raising money is a service. It's a service because you can't force someone to do it, but you can open the door for them to contribute. There's no absolute number, no perfect amount, 15%, 10%, 20%, nor is there one for charity, $1,000, $100. In many communities, Mormon communities, Jewish communities, and others, tithing is a thing. of your income every year to charity. Where'd the number come from? It doesn't matter. People like us do things like this. And so when we think about tipping, it's the way it's been. The question is, is that the way it should stay? We have a chance to establish what the standard is. The standard when we go to a restaurant and the standard when we support a charity. Gifts are complicated indeed because our culture doesn't market them the way that they market buying stuff for ourselves. When we think about this complicated social construct of tipping then, it really needs to go away. It needs to go away because the people who are giving are giving for so many different reasons. For Sylvia Bloom reasons or for Jerry Seinfeld reasons. For Phil Knight reasons. Because they want to see their sports team win, and the waiter or waitress is wearing the right kind of jersey. But the people who are working, they're generally working for one reason, to support their family, to figure out how to get by, to do the work that they are proud of and get paid fairly while they do it. And so the challenge of telling the story about what happens when we don't tip. When we don't tip, We're doing something more than easing up the paperwork. We're striking a blow for equity. We're striking a blow for professionalism. Because we don't tip the surgeon. We don't need to. Because she's going to do great work simply because she can. Because it's her job. Even if she's having a bad day. Even if she doesn't like your haircut. She's going to do a good job. And I'd like to think we can extend the same benefit of the doubt to that person who's bringing us french fries with Dijon mustard, no ketchup, please. That person deserves the dignity of knowing 
that they did a good job simply because they could, not because one out of X number of times, someone who thinks they're a celebrity, who has a status story they want to tell, leaves them an extra big tip. And that person in the kitchen, that disrespected person who's washing pots, or that hot-headed chef who's trying to keep it all together, those folks, those folks are professionals as well, as professionals as you or I, and they deserve a living wage. It's a wage we can give them if we understand that we don't have to put on a status show every time we go out for lunch or dinner. So yeah, I'm a big fan of this no-tipping movement, but I think it's worthy of an examination in this podcast because it helps us see that everyone tells themselves a story, whatever they're doing, whether they're choosing to buy clean water from Water Health International for their family for a couple pennies for a liter, or if they're going to walk for several hours to a dirty river to get that water that doesn't serve the same purpose. It's all about telling ourselves a story. What's it for? Who's it for? What difference are we seeking to make? What do people like us do? Thanks for listening. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. This is Michael from the Caribbean island of Seba. Here's my question, and it keeps popping up every single time I listen to an Akimbo episode. The question is, what does it mean to be exclusive? There's a difference, it turns out, between being elite and being exclusive. Elite means that you had to do something to get in. Sometimes elite is just money, but it might be something based on admissions or training. So the Navy SEALs are an elite institution. On the other hand, there's this idea of exclusive. Exclusive means there isn't enough room for everyone. Exclusive means there might be more people who want to get in than can be sustained. So it could be argued that the Navy SEALs have some level of exclusivity because you do have to apply to get in. But really what they're known for is being elite having survived the training. So if we're going to talk about being exclusive, then we have to begin with the commitment to limit our supply and to give the people who are insiders a benefit from being insiders, that there's a reason we have limited our supply. There are lots of things, like the phone system, that aren't better if they are exclusive. They work better, in fact, if they're universal. But then there are other things where people are able to connect with one another, find a community, get tribal benefits, find self-esteem by being part of something that's exclusive. But exclusive doesn't have to be gated by money. In fact, the best exclusive items aren't gated that way at all because money, as we're finding in our society, really doesn't often belong to people that you want to spend your time hanging out with. So, no, it's not that it's for sale. It's that you had to do something to get in. I want to tell myself a new story. 
I want to change the culture. What happens if my new story and new culture conflicts with other people's interests? Thank you. That's a great question. We got another one just like it. G'day, Seth. Adam Ashton from Melbourne, Australia. Absolutely love the show. Great episode. Is trying to change the culture something that you do actively, trying to push, trying to agitate people to do, or is it more of a long-term passive pull, lead by example kind of thing? Once you begin to see that the culture is in fact flexible, that it changes over time, and you become able to realize that you in fact are able to change it, a whole bunch of interesting questions show up. What right do I have to change the culture? When I seek to change the culture, do I do it with intent or is it simply a side effect? How do I deal with the people around me who don't want the culture changed? Is that common? Well, here's the thing. The reason the culture is the way the culture is is because the status quo is really good at fighting change. People have come before you, before me, and tried to change the culture and failed. Most people do. That's why the status quo exists, because it's good at that. So what we need to do, if we seek to make our tiny corner of the culture just a little bit better, is see the people who don't want to come along for that journey. Figure out if we've got a chance to earn their enrollment. Intentionally create tension, the tension between the status quo as it is and the possibility of better. And it's a complicated process, and it has a name, and that name is marketing. Marketing isn't the act of running a TV ad. Marketing is the act of causing a change to happen, not to everyone, but to a small group of people, people who are eager for something different. So one of the themes of Akimbo, here we are almost 20 episodes in, is the fact that each of us has that ability. If you have the technology to hear this podcast, it means you have the technology to publish, to put your ideas into the world, to make connections, to organize, to put ideas and words and videos out there, to create products, industries, markets. All of those things change the culture. And like it or not, we're responsible for that. Whether we do it or not, we're responsible for that. So yeah, you've seen what I'm trying to do and we'll keep trying to do it because I believe that each of us has the ability to either ratchet things down, which is selfish, or ratchet things up to create something that we're proud of. Thanks for listening. As always, we love to hear your questions. Just visit akimbo.link and press the appropriate button. There's a big problem that's changing everything about the world as we know it. Carbon and the impact of humans on the earth. We talk about it with words like climate change and global warming. But there's just two really important things that you need to know about it. First, this is an overwhelmingly big problem. So much so that it's likely that you feel as though your choices don't matter in the face of it. Second, that overwhelming feeling that I just mentioned, it's intentional. It was put there by design. The industries that make the biggest environmental impact have a vested interest in you feeling overwhelmed and powerless. They've marketed, lobbied, and schemed to create that feeling in all of us. In short, 
we've been lied to. But here's the good news. There's a lot you can do to make a difference. And the other good news is that there's still time. The Carbon Almanac is a book and project about these problems and what we can do to solve them. It was created and run by volunteers on the premise that it's not too late, but none of us can fix this problem on our own. We need each other. There are many ways to get involved, but simply learning more is a great start. Here are three steps you can take. First, go to thecarbonalmanac.org and sign up for the Daily Difference emails. They give you a short thought and a practical action that you can take alongside thousands of others every day. Second, get the Carbon Almanac book. It's full of facts, articles, graphs, and art. It's beautiful and fun to engage with. It's all footnoted and fact-checked. And importantly, it's made by volunteers whose only agenda is to solve these systemic issues. You can find it wherever books are sold. Finally, since you're listening to a podcast, search for the Carbon Almanac wherever you're listening. You'll find the Carbon Almanac podcast network and a few shows featuring expert insight, discussion, inspiration, and ways to take action. There's even a show just for kids. Do what appeals to you. Just do something. There's still time to make a huge difference in the future of the planet, but we can't solve this on our own. Join us.